The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight, and a special welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. Uh, feel free to come up and say hello afterward, or if you have questions, Anne is our program host. You can check in with her, need help registering for a program or wanting to do an online donation. She'll show you how to do that with the iPad out in the lobby after the program. also want to thank the, I don't even remember who taught last Wednesday. Do you remember, Gabe? Somebody was here. Huh? Mary Young. Yeah, oh good. Mary's a longtime friend and longtime teacher here at the center. And it's always nice to be able to teach, to accept uh, teaching invitations to teach other places and knowing that there are a lot of teachers here at the center that are happy and quite capable of stepping in. So I thought it'd be nice to take a little time and just remember what we're doing and it's Simple, but as many of you who've been doing this Buddhist awareness practice for a while know, it's, it can be quite challenging even though the practice is simple. Right? We're just remembering to be aware. So remembering that there is awareness that can know at least if we remember that it's like this. So it's adding, it's developing this muscle mental muscle, you could say, where the mind is remembering that this is being known, remembering that this is being known. Almost as if we're inserting a mirror that is just simply, in a non-judgmental way, reflecting this is being known. And please, it's, it's quite useful, actually, as I'm talking, as we're discussing later in the evening, to just sustain this present moment awareness and to begin again when the mind gets absorbed in its thoughts, caught up in reactivity or whatever the mind does, because we can always start over again by recognizing, oh, now this is being known. So as soon as you know that the mind is distracted, you're not distracted, there's a reflective knowing, oh yeah, the mind is thinking, the mind's planning. I'm... um, Inspired by this line from the Tao Te Ching, this Taoist text, some of you know about ancient text, where it describes uh, something about the nature of water, which is, I mean, I want to make the connection between this line and the nature of water and the nature of awareness. So the line is, the weakest thing in the world can overmatch the strongest things in the world. Nothing in the world can be compared to water for its weak and yielding nature. Yet in attacking the hard and the strong, nothing proves better than it, for there is no alternative to it. The weak can overcome the strong and the yielding can overcome the hard. This all the world knows but does not practice. Right? So when we want when we want to make something happen, the habit is to use a very particular kind of power, you know, the more stereotypic power of strength. We oppose force with force. Right? That's the way 
So that's why we have a lot of wars or lawsuits in our mind, in our relationship, in our world. I heard recently, you know, just as everyone knows, there's a lot of political divisiveness these days, and it seems that way now for a while, and maybe forever. You know, sometimes it seems like this is an unusual time. And then I remember, you know, in the early 50s, McCarthy and, you know, and labor unions getting formed in the 20s and 30s and the kind of violence and, and you know, just the various groups that have been marginalized and oppressed over the centuries in this country and forever in the world. So who knows if it's worse or the same or better. All we know is it could be better. right? This divisiveness could be better. It's just interesting to notice how we respond when we hear something that seems wrong, seems you know, unjust, inappropriate. Because the the Buddhist approach is to meet dukkha, to meet suffering, whether it's global or in your own heart, to meet it with understanding. But our habit is to meet it with, no, you know, I don't want to be that way, or you shouldn't be this way, or they shouldn't be this way. And there's, you know, it makes sense in a way to meet force with force. But in our meditation practice and then through the day, we're experimenting, we're just checking out. You don't have to believe it, but it's probably worth checking out this other way of approaching, meeting the world that we inhabit, the mind that we have. So instead of meeting what we like and what we don't like with that force, we meet it with understanding. We use awareness, this balanced, non-judging, clear, kind presence. We meet whatever shows up to provoke our heart, you know, whatever is provocative, whatever challenges our equilibrium. We don't meet it with an opposing force, we practice meeting it with understanding. And we just learn, like, is that helpful? Nobody, you know, just somebody who grew up splashing in a lake, splashing in a stream, would ever think that water could cut a groove in the earth, like the Grand Canyon or any number of other things that, given enough time, water has worn down. So as powerful as our habit energies are, or as powerful as the injustice and the sort of systemic ignorance is in our hearts, in our world, we should at least hold out the possibility that that clear awareness, that clear presence is transforming. I mean, we do this more and more. I mean, it gets, uh, it's beginning to get understood that when there's an injustice, sometimes what we want is sort of a, a mirror that reflects it back. Like, okay, this is what's happening. Because when people really see injustice, 
we don't want to put up with it. But if we can somehow live without seeing it, we can let it happen for a long time. And it's the same within our own minds. You know, if we're basically being dishonest with ourselves, if we're um, relating to our experience in ways that create tension, difficulty in our relationships, difficulty with my own mind and body, if we're not aware of it, if we're not clearly, honestly comprehending what's happening, we can live with addictive habits for a long time, very destructive habits for a long time. But when we really see it honestly and clearly, and we see it enough honestly and clearly, it's really hard to continue with toxic habits, unhealthy habits, when they're being clearly seen. So this path of understanding, you know, this is why there needs to be a real, and, and we're the one who has to do this, by the way, we, this repeated instruction to relax. Right? Because if the change agent Instead of force, you know, volitional force, I'm like, I'm going to fix myself. I don't want to be a jerk anymore. I don't want to be fearful anymore. I'm tired of being afraid. So enough. You know, like I'm going to squeeze that out of me or I'm going to make myself do something. Now, I'm not saying there, there can be temporary results to this sort of forceful, action in the world and in our lives. But I, I like to say, even though it's a little strange to say it this way, in a frictionless world, with every push, there's an equal and opposite pushback. Right? We've seen this. You know, there's you know, different places. Like uh, if you're in water over your head, right, and you're facing this way, it's like there's not as much friction. It, it's, there was, a, a, I guess the example I'll use is one when I brought my class. I was a classroom teacher back in the 80s in Oakland, and we brought our class to the Exploratorium in San Francisco. It's a science muse- museum, and they had a little thing that you could stand on, and it had uh, you could turn on it, but um, it was very frictionless, the little thing it was sitting on. So if you try to spin yourself around, you could get yourself, you could get that thing turning, but inevitably, whatever you did to do this, you had to undo it, and then you'd go right back to where you were. So try as you might, it always felt like you were making progress, but there would always have to be a straightening back, and that would send you the other way. And I would imagine like for the astronauts in space, you know, frictionless environment, like when they're trying to, you know, if they didn't have a jetpack on or whatever they use or can't use some other object to turn themselves, it's not easy to turn yourself around because whatever you do, you're going to undo it and you get, they'll counterbalance each other. So part of the reason it's hard to change the trajectory of our habits and the world's habit is for this way for this reason rather, that we see it, we might even to some degree 
we do comprehend that, like, I don't like it, I want it to change. But because we don't really understand what's happening, our way of changing ends up reinforcing what's happening. Right? So we're, we know we're suffering. Most human beings, at least most, you know, most healthy human beings in moments, know that there is stress in their heart, know that their heart is burdened to some degree. But our instinct is to always use a personal effort to address the suffering we have in life or the suffering we see in our relationships or in our world. And then we basically, because we're using greed, anger, and delusion to, to address the suffering of greed, anger, and delusion, nothing changes. Always doing what we've always done, always getting what we've always got. So the whole point, like when we put aside a half an hour to sit at home or you come to the center and you're sitting, we're specifically doing something different than what we always do. So instead of volitional action to fix our life, to stop something from happening, to make something happen, we're comprehending. So this is the, like in the, passage from the Tao Te Ching about water, like the equivalent in Buddhist meditation practice is awareness. It's balanced present moment awareness. Right? It's not a volition to change something. It is something, right? Awareness is something. It's the absence of distractedness. But we're not trying to stop something and we're not trying to make something happen. We're just trying to let whatever is happen, happening, trying to allow it to reveal itself in the space of awareness. So it isn't even quite right to think, I'm putting my awareness, I'm going to figure out what's happening, because that's still more of that forceful controlling, that's a misunderstanding what awareness, what wise comprehension is all about. It's much more about letting go, right? And in letting go, what remains is, you could say, like, this capacity to be aware. And in that space of awareness, in that capacity to be aware, objects are known. The nature of what's coming and going reveals itself. It isn't even so much that I'm figuring out what's happening as that because I don't have the idea that I have to do anything and more in the knowing then whatever is unfolding is revealed. Because we can't really understand or comprehend something that we're messing with. You have to get out of the way to really comprehend what this is. So there is a mind and body or there is me or whatever word you want to words you want to put on whatever you know to to name what this is my life, this experience, the activity of the mind and body, whatever it is. But if we want to understand it, if we, if in hearing this talk or hearing some of the teachings from this person, the Buddha, person we call the Buddha, some 25, 2600 years ago, if the teachings make sense to us that the most powerful thing is awareness, is clear comprehension, this is what really transforms our life. Not me trying to fix my life 
or me trying to get rid of those things that are irritating my life, but really emphasizing comprehension, this clear comprehension, that means we have to practice non-involvement in a way. right? So then you get a sense like why the form of our practice, sitting still, sitting upright as a metaphor, as an expression of like wanting to see clearly, wanting to be intimate, but being completely relaxed, released. And we do it in the with this particular form that we call sitting meditation. So then we gain some momentum, some understanding, so we can do it all day long. That's the idea. Not just the 30-minute sit in the morning or the hour-long sit in the morning, but all day long, through our waking hours at least. We want to be emphasizing the deepening of understanding that comes from this non-judging, non-reactive present moment awareness because that's what transforms understanding. It's not that we don't care about how life is unfolding. right? It's not like we stopped caring that I have habits that aren't helpful and I'm undermining my relationship with the people that I love or the world seems to be cycling in a direction that's not good and I really care about it. It's precisely because we care about what we're seeing. The beauty we see, we want to strengthen that. We want it to be even more beautiful. And the suffering we see, we want to undermine it. We want to get rid of the causes for it. So it's precisely because we care about what's good and what's bad or what's skillful and non-skillful that we're willing to do whatever will help. And because we've seen that my volitional attempts to make me better or to make the world better often have an equal and opposite pushback that we're willing to try something out of the box. right? So I'm going to emphasize understanding, not fixing. But we're not saying no to fixing, it's just that's not what we're doing. Fixing might happen. You may say something, you may do something, but what you're emphasizing is that present moment understanding. And you're basically not taking responsibility for you and your personality, you know, for your participation in the world. You're emphasizing the awareness of it. So first, that's why just because we sit for 30 minutes in the morning or we sit for an hour in the morning or you go on a Buddhist meditation retreat a couple times a year for nine days or a long weekend or something like that, but that doesn't mean we don't want to confuse the ritual of city meditation for a strategy for living, like, you know, you want to get married? Okay, let me sit. You know, or, you know, the Russians are invading? Well, let me sit. Or, you know, what? it's not meant to be the sort of what we do. It's a metaphor for emphasizing being intimate and letting action come from the understanding of connecting meeting the moment as it is with awareness, without judgment. And then uh, the understanding will arise from that non-involvement and will allow response, choice, to come from understanding. So we're really 
going to the heart of what leads to a beautiful, skillful response, moment by moment by moment. Or another way of putting it is, what gets in the way? Like Again, you can look at a micro way within your own mind or slightly bigger within your family or bigger within your community or bigger within the world. What gets in the way of skillful responding to the problems that exist? Well, it's misunderstanding what's going on. It's not that people aren't doing things. People are doing things all the time, right? It's like the people we think are causing the problem, they, believe it or not, actually think they're doing the right thing. So what's the problem? They don't understand the way it is. So if we practice understanding, living from that place, living out of that place of understanding, so everything about who and what we are, the sort of refuge, the main thing, is being grounded in understanding. And understanding that is both broad, all-inclusive, so it's not like a, just a narrow, deep understanding, but it's also broad. So that's really the understanding of wisdom. What we call wisdom in a Buddhist context is both broad and deep. We're seeing the breadth of what's going on. You could think of this as like the interrelatedness or the interdependence of how this is happening now, why, why it's like this now, and the depth. And so we're not confused because the mind understands, oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. I get really defensive. Or sometimes the world is like this and the people with power oppress oppress the people without power. Sometimes it's like this. So comprehending deeply the way it is, we understand how to respond. What might actually move things in a way with less suffering? There's a beautiful, I think, powerful passage from the discourses. It's called Kappa's Question. Somebody asked the Buddha something. This person said to the Buddha, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of being. Right? So he's describing what it's like to be a human being. People stuck midstream in the terror and fear of the rush of the river of being. They often use the image of flood as sort of, um, because it was the main natural disaster where the Buddha taught in the, the floodplain, basically, of the river Ganges. Um, and so, you know, the river would rise, it could sweep away a village. So it was sort of a scary thing. So this image of being flooded by our own habit energies then the Buddha used that image quite a bit. So this person is asking the Buddha a question like, yeah, we often feel, maybe not every moment of our life, but certainly in moments we feel flooded, stuck in this movement of emotion, movement of fear, movement of desire, movement of confusion and doubt, right? The rush of the river being, and death and decay or you could say insecurity, loss, overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island 
Right? So like in a flood, if you did get swept away, your village got swept away, you'd kind of hope you'd run into an island there in the middle right, where you could grab a tree or pull your, drag yourself on the land and be safe for a while. Tell me where to find an island. Tell me where, to fi- tell me where there is solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain, right, falling into this flood. And this is our actual experience. You know, when we're caught up in some afflictive state, it, when you look at it, it actually you're, you'll experience it as a kind of flood, like being swept away. And it's sort of like you, in moments, don't we know that we're being swept away? It's like, but we just, it's so seductive, whatever the content is, it just always feels like the thing to do is to struggle, which is the, perpetuating the being swept away. So here's how the Buddha responds. Kappa, said the Master, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of, middle of the river of being, overwhelmed by death and decay, insecurity and loss, I will tell you where to find solid ground. Now, we don't know if the Buddha's right, but we should at this point be interested to hear what this person has to say. Like, Aren't you interested when you're swept away where the solid ground is? So the Buddha says, there is an island, an island you cannot go beyond. Meaning, I think in this case, you don't need another island beyond this island. This is all you need to deal with the river of being, being a sensitive human being, being a human being, because basically the river, from a self-personal point of view, the river, what we get swept away by, is uncertainty, insecurity, and the basic ungovernableness of life. This isn't the ungovernableness, the insecurity, the vulnerability. This isn't a wrong. This is just the way it is. It's always this way. Sometimes we forget it's this way. Sometimes life shows up where we can forget that the basic fabric of existence is change, is uncertain, is insecure. And from a self-personal point of view, that's vulnerability, that's insecurity. So that's the river of being. And the Buddha says, there's an island you can't go beyond. There's a resolution to insecurity but it's not the island as we might imagine, like the thing that stands in the flood but isn't moved by the flood, right? Like meeting force with force. The island is a shift in understanding. That's what we're after. And this is the Buddha explains that. He says, it's a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and, a, and of non-attachment. It is the total end of insecurity, and that is why, and this is why I call it Nibbana, the cool, unbinding. And it reminds me, there's a story that's told, it's told in different ways. One of our community members wrote a really beautiful song about it. I think it's called uh, Tigers Above, Tigers Below. Ellis, some of you know, she's a wonderful local singer-songwriter, travels around and sings, uh, performs around the country as well. But anyway, um, her version is more of the traditional version, but there's a different version of this story, right? ancient story that's been told, talking about meditation practice. And it's about um, somebody being chased by tigers, 
running, running, looking over their shoulder. And because they're looking over their shoulder, they end up running right off of a cliff because they're distracted. Luckily, they grab a vine and uh, tiger's above, tiger's below or boulder filled below, but danger above, danger below, hanging by a vine. And sure enough, a little rat goes by, comes by and starts to gnaw on the vine. It's just a matter of time, right? And here's where the story has lots of different versions. So one, one version is the person then says, oh, God, help me. Not really expecting a response, but sure enough, God says, honey, I'm here. What do you need? <laughs> you know, I'm screwed. T- tiger's below, tiger's above, a rat's nine on the vine. Help me. And so God says, sure, <laughs> let go. So in this version, the person says, is there anybody else up there? Because <laughs> that's basically what the Buddha is saying about what we do with this river of being, being swept away with our habit energies of fearing, wanting, always thinking that the resolution of being a human being is to get something I want or to get rid of something I don't want, right? Hasn't that been our response? We have a stressful day, I just need a drink, or I need a funny movie, or I need some time with my friend, or I need to get rid of a job. I need to move to the South Shore or the North Shore where it's perfect all the time. You know, there are beautiful breezes, winter never comes, that black fly season doesn't come either. (laughs) You know, it's just the perfect time. Not too cold, not too warm, where everybody around me has the same political views as me. Don't have to deal with people who have different political views. There is an island, the Buddha says, an island where which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness. The mind isn't turning things into the sort of dualistic good and bad, mine and yours, hate and love. It's not organizing the world. And this is pointed to the shift in understanding, non-possession, non-attachment. And then at the end, the Buddha says, there are people, right? So he's saying, there are people who have found this refuge. There are people who in mindfulness, right, the continuity of this present moment awareness, have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. Now, you may not like coolness, you know, in Minnesota, coolness doesn't mean the same thing as it does in the tropics, right? Because mostly in the tropics, where the Buddha taught, people were afflicted by being hot and humid. But now, today, we can maybe appreciate coolness as a nice simile for nibbana, for freedom, for release. A mind that is not afflicted, a mind that's not misunderstanding insecurity, not misunderstanding uncertainty not misunderstanding vulnerability. What is the experience of vulnerability without the mind confused by the experience? You know, we don't know what's going to happen tonight. We don't even know what's going to happen in the next moment. You know, every once in a long while, I think it's happened maybe two or three times since we moved into this building in 2009, where somebody would just come by because you can reach these windows and just sort of 
do something funny in the windows. A lot of you, these folks would see it, but most of you wouldn't. But, you know, it's sort of like you don't expect that. You sort of feel like we're in a sacred space, protected. Not that they do bad things, but they're sort of, you know, make a funny face or kind of like what's going on in there. And so anything can happen anytime. So it's really interesting to, like, what is that, what are surprising experiences when the mind wasn't, in, didn't, wasn't caught in any expectation? So then there's no surprise because the mind wasn't expecting that not to happen. It's like now we might be expecting the room to be serene. But we don't have to be identified or caught in that expectation. Or you go home, you have a partner, or you have a friend, or you have a pet. You know, We might have some probabilities of what we might experience when we're with that other being, but the fact is we don't know what it will be like. And that's a really fresh way to be. We don't even know what the next thought arising in our mind is. There's a way we can get to this place of no possession, no attachment, no thingness. The mind not dependent on its own construction. So the mind can still think, but the mind isn't mistakenly using its thoughts, its conceptions to create ground and imagine ground. Because then we're vulnerable to the next thought or the next experiencing experience rather, challenging that ground. So, you know, imagine what that would be like. Maybe you can even just have a sense. Because in a way, we can sense like right now, there's no past behind us and there's no future in front of us. Right? The future isn't here yet. It's completely like, if you've ever stood, I, I, I don't know, a long time ago I was on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Some of you may have been there or the south rim, but the north rim is even higher. It's like 8,000 feet. You know, and it's, more than a mile down, and you can get some places away from the main uh, touristy places. You can go walk right up to the rim, and there's no fence there, you know. So you're just walking up the rim, and this is—I mean, it's not sh- necessarily a sheer drop, but it's pretty much a sheer drop. And you can stand there, and so that's like the future in front of us. It's just not there. And now you can remember. Now you can imagine, like, behind you is also the same vast open space, like because. Even though the idea that we cling to is that the past is behind us. But is there actually past behind us anywhere? No. Like five o'clock today literally doesn't exist anywhere, let alone, you know, 840, right? It's 841. So 840 is just like gone. It's like the Grand Canyon behind us and in front of us. And then this very thin place this very alive, thin place is very ephemeral because it's constantly in motion. Right? This moment never lasts very long because the next moment's got to come in. And it can't come in unless this moment goes. So this isn't like a story. This is actually the way it is directly. When, we, when our mind is liberated from the struggle of holding to its thoughts about things and relaxes and comprehends 
the present moment reality of experience coming and going, activity of the mind and body coming and going, right in the flow, more than any other way, this is how the Buddha talks about insight, the transformation of understanding. Understanding the ephemeral and permanent nature, not theoretically, like, oh, you're born and then I die. That's a grosser expression of the truth of impermanence. But it's the radical impermanence that's always been true. So even though when we start to wake up, like when we loosen the screws enough and we're not caught in our ideas, concepts about things, our interpretation, and we're more in that reality of how incredibly wild and thin and ephemeral and unsubstantial this is, remember, it's always been this way and we've done fine. So it's not like, oh my God, somebody's taking away the ground. There's never been ground. There never will be ground. It's always been this radically open. And the more and more we touch open, sense, intuit that space, the more the heart is just naturally compassionate and naturally not attached. And our, and our response to the world is completely fearless. We just do the right thing fearlessly. We do what seems appropriate fearlessly because we know in a deep intuitive sense there is absolutely nothing to lose. We think there's a lot to lose, right? It's like my savings for retirement. I could lose that. Or my health. I could lose that. Or my life. Or my loved ones. I could lose that. Or my respect. I could be humiliated. Or whatever, you know, you know, however hard I've worked to get people to like me, I could lose that. They could have a different opinion about me. And all of those things, I don't know about you, but all of those things on a more basic personality level, there can be some fear there about losing any of those things, right? So where this, this transformation, like the non-possession, the non-attachment, the no-thingness, that, you know, the no-thingness, the nothingness, it means the mind isn't attached, it, it isn't misunderstanding whatever conceptual frame my mind might create, the mind isn't going to misunderstand it. It isn't going to take any concept, any story to be more than a story the mind is saying to itself, repeating to itself. Well, that's just a thought. It's not dismissing. It's still something. It's a thought. I'm at common ground or I'm healthy. But that's not ground. But I, when I misunderstand it, I can think it's ground. So another way to understand like what the development, you know, what the continuity of awareness leads to in terms of the transformation of understanding is basically we meet all the demons. Whatever thing, whatever thing we could be afraid of, we are afraid of. Whatever monster we've hidden because we don't want to be eaten up, whatever thing we think uh, doesn't belong, we let it all in. So then what is left to be tight about? So when we 
completely integrate the reality of insecurity, vulnerability, uncertainty, and ungovernableness when we actually integrate in the process nature. All that's left, like in the later traditions, they talked about this as unstoppable compassionate action. The three things that are left, when the understanding matures, when the mind has trained itself not to be confused by any conception, doesn't mean you're not thinking, just means the mind isn't confused by thinking. Then what's left is emptiness, right? The emptiness of delusion or the emptiness of misunderstanding one's conceptions. Emptiness. Knowing is left, right? There's a mind that knows. And unstoppable compassionate action. Because there's still a personality, there's still vitality, a body, personality. But now there's nothing neurotic for that personality to do. So the only thing that's left for the body and mind, the personality to do is unstoppable, compassionate action. That body-mind just does what the moment asks for, taking care of all beings, not in some lofty way, but just showing up to what the moment is and responding appropriately without preferring their well-being over somebody else's, but not neglecting one's well-being, thinking that Morris's well-being is more important than my well-being. Right? So it's this indiscriminate kindness. Right? Because that's what's left when greed, anger, and delusion is no longer confusing for the mind. So even if somebody were to trigger an ancient habit of being defensive or being angry, the mind wouldn't misunderstand that movement of anger. Oh yeah, that's just anger. And that's just this ephemeral thing coming and going. I don't need to be confused by that. I don't need to make the anger that's here, maybe as a visceral feeling, maybe some content, I don't have to make it more than what it is. It's just that old habit energy, like a ancient string that gets strum, strung, strummed, strummed, right? And you know, it's not even like somebody strummed it. It's like if you're around certain environment, the strings that have a sympathetic resonance begin to resonate. That's not going to go away, even with deep understanding. But what can change is the mind misunderstanding the reverberation of greed, the reverberation of anger, the reverberation of lust. Oh yeah, that's just that thing. That's just that thing. I don't need to be confused by that. I don't need to make it more than what it is. Because we can just be aware of it. It feels like this. And Lo and behold, like everything else, it comes and goes. I don't need to be the one to make it go away even because it will go away. Think about all the despicable thoughts we've had. They've come. They were there for a while. If we got identified, they might have been there for a long while. But inevitably, they go away and something else happens. Maybe a sublime or beautiful thought. That also goes away. Things just keep moving. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice... If there, we have about 10 minutes to hear from some folks in the room tonight, your questions or your own sharings from your experience, your practice. Anybody want to start us off? Yeah, Jake. Hi, my name is Jake. Um, so on Monday, uh, my friend committed suicide. Uh, and it was just really interesting, kind of uh, some of the stuff you were talking about, about how 
at first, like the thought of me losing my friend and about how, you know, the whole situation went down and all that, that was really painful. And then it was kind of, I just had these moments though, where I was like, I wonder if I'm just making all that up, right? Like the idea that, you know, he wasn't supposed to, you know, go out that way and, and, you know, we're supposed to, you know, but then kind of like you said, like the one thing that was really interesting, even like a couple of years ago, I think I would have definitely like just went in this deep rabbit hole of, you know, fees over and over and over, just dwelling on it for days. Oh, my fault. And, um, but yeah, I just, there was these moments where, you know, I'd feel really sad, but then I was like, you know, what am I really sad about? Like what, you know, like I, and then, you know, I had some gratitude about the time we spent together and things like that. But I was like, is like dwelling on our memories together these things like you're kind of saying like really a good use of you know like it was just interesting to explore that yeah no really powerful comment jake and here's the question basically summarizing what jake said what is the experience of loss without our thoughts about it what's the actual experience of loss not that the thoughts are bad but when the mind's not confused by the thought of, oh, this person committed suicide, or I will never see this person again. What's the feeling without the thought? It's a really important way to explore grief and the pain of loss. Pain of loss is something, but it's different than the ideas that are spinning. And it's not always easy for awareness to go right to the feeling. It takes some practice. Sometimes we have to sort of orbit the raw feeling. Sometimes there's no feeling there. One of the things I say to people who are working with grief and loss, the pain of loss, is to really be careful about expecting something. Because sometimes it might be there, and sometimes it might not be there. And then people can be really uh, shocked and upset that the heart isn't hurting because they think, well, this person I loved is gone. I should be experiencing grief. But honey, not in this moment because in this moment it's like this. And then, you know, it could be years later and you might think, I've grieved, I'm done with this. And then all of a sudden this huge wave of grief can come in. And it could be just the opposite sort of thing like, no, 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 I'm done with my grieving. No. We trust what shows up, you know, not the idea. So I really, I think that's like uh, the honesty, Jake, to be able to start to question, like, what is this experience? Instead of imagining we know what the experience should be, to be actually curious and to really see how dynamic it is, like how it feels to have lost a friend in that way is not just one thing many different feelings you'll have in the course of the weeks and months and years maybe that it's rich for you. It's not just one thing. Thanks, Jake. Other thoughts? What have you been learning in your practice? Questions? Yeah, first Joan. Hi, I'm Joan. Uh, While well, I was listening to your uh, talk from Monday night, which is great, from Buddhist study, which I can't go to, but it was about the five hindrances. And then earlier tonight, you mentioned something that made me think about distraction, and I think um, starting to notice that I was have been minimalizing distraction. 
you know, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, oh, it's only distraction if I'm reading the newspaper while I'm eating my cereal. But it sounds like distraction is everything that's not awareness, right? Like every moment mm-hmm. I'm not paying attention, I'm distracted. Yeah. And then... It's the only enemy except distraction. It's the only enemy, but hating the enemy is joining the enemy. So it is an enemy. I mean, distraction is dangerous because when we're not aware, we're basically vulnerable to whatever our habit energies are that are going to get triggered. And I mean, some of you have really good habit energies, you know, a lot of kindness or generosity. But let's be honest, not all of our habit energies we want to be governing the unfolding of our life. Sorry to interrupt, John. No, that's great. And so could you just... Uh, give me some little more reminders about how relaxation can play into uh, my helping myself with being aware of when I'm distracted is what the goal is, right? Or what yeah, I'm working yeah. for. Yeah, I mean, it's a sweet spot between being really lazy or complacent. But we have to understand that trying hard to be aware can be just a di- as distracting as thinking that there's nothing I have to do. You know, like, oh, I'm already aware. You know, there's sort of in New Agey circles a little bit about present moment awareness, thinking that basically deluding ourselves, like, I'm already in the present moment, you know. And just we have, there's a view in the mind, like, it's all okay. And so, but it's a fixed view. And it seems, you know, it can kind of masquerade as like we're practicing, but it's really delusion. So you have to sort of assess your own habit energy. Are you more someone who gets distracted by trying too hard? Or are you more often the type who gets distracted by somehow getting caught with the idea that there's nothing I need to do? You know, I'm sitting still. That should be enough. And basically, the meditation is the mind finding one thought to think or a couple thoughts, you know, but it's so less, so much less um, wild than when you're not meditating. But you're not really meditating, you're just having more concentrated thinking or less distracted thinking. But there's no development of awareness. And you have to understand that the, the continuity of present moment awareness is a potent force. One of the things that gets in the way is when you do have a few seconds of that balanced present moment awareness, the energy really builds in the mind very quickly, like even in a matter of a few seconds. And one of the first things, I mean, not if you've been doing it for a while, but if you're relatively new, it feels almost like you're moving into an altered state because non-distraction is unusual for human beings. We're mostly in a distracted state, meaning under the influence, our mind being shaped, our experience being shaped, by the thoughts that we're thinking. So when the mind is not, the experience of the present moment is not mediated by the thoughts, that's a different kind of reality. But in Buddhism's sense, it's, it's natural. It's the ordinary state, and distraction is the extraordinary, you know, disturbed state. Yeah. So you need to find that sweet spot where there's enough intention, enough sort of respect for the present moment that we're not going to forget this reflective presence, this present moment awareness, 
but not tr- not efforting in a way that's not helpful, like trying. Because, like right now, even hearing my voice, how much trying do you need to be aware that hearing's like this? It's just that very subtle effort to remember, oh yeah, this is being known. But you don't need even those words to sustain that present moment awareness. Oh, it's like this sound. Yeah, thanks, Joan. Mike, did you have a thought? Um, I've been practicing for about 10 years, and when I first discovered mindfulness, it was like um, a powerful experience, and I kind of became obsessed with it in a way. <laughs> um, I was practicing very, very religiously, but it kind of got to the point where I was like demanding results because I was so, so sincerely practicing um, to the point where I kind of took a break from it for a while. And um, in the last couple of years, having kind of re, um, I guess, kind of re introduced myself to it um i'm beginning to find uh a more kind of sincere yet casual perspective where the results of mindfulness kind of organically arise um you know as you're describing there's the formal practice and then there's the non-formal practice which is everyday life um but it kind of brings that question again up from past experience of where is the right effort where you know you're not just doing your 30 minutes you're going to your retreats and then calling it good but you're not also like spending the whole day trying to be <laughs> aware yeah so yeah it's a really good question a good way to end the evening um before I kind of respond, I just want to remind folks that uh, Gabe Keller, our office manager and one of the teachers here at the center, put up on the blog a couple of weeks ago um, some instructions that Saida Utejaniya, this wonderful Burmese Buddhist monk and teacher, um, it's just his morning instructions during a 14-day retreat. And it's on the blog and you can read it. And uh, because he, one of the things Saida Utejaniya does really well is when he talks about effort, two things. We want an effort that can be sta- sustained all day long. So that kind of gives you a sense of what right effort is. It's not something you get tired easily doing. So if, if you have to, like, if your mind starts to get tired and you need a break from being aware, it's the wrong kind of awareness, right? Because we're looking for a very natural thing. So here's, because it's a difficult question to answer, Mike, like, what's the right effort? So it might be more like discovering it instead of uh, doing it. And the way we discover it is more about falling in love and appreciating what present moment awareness is. Because the more we understand what present moment awareness is and what distraction is, the more we know where to find that sweet spot. So a lot of the reason we have wrong effort is we don't really know what we're trying to do we kind of have an idea of what present moment awareness is or mindful awareness is, but we don't really know what it is. So then we overshoot with too much effort or we undershoot and we're too complacent. So instead of like trying to figure out what's right effort, it might be more useful to be really curious 
what is the experience of being present with some continuity? What did, what did the Buddha mean by mindful awareness? This balanced, non-judging, seeing things in and of themselves. So not the experience not mediated by language. So seeing is just seeing, not the idea. I'm not confused by the idea of what I'm seeing. Thought is just thought. Seeing is just seeing. Hearing is just hearing. Sensation is just sensation. The more we know what present moment awareness is, the more the mind, the heart, wisdom, whatever, respects it. The more, you know you know how it is. When you get fall in love with something, is it hard to keep it in mind? No. no. So the more we see present moment awareness as a refuge, as a real protector, um, really supporting our well-being, we keep it in mind. So let's take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time for one, maybe two easy breaths together. Appreciating being here together and all of our spiritual ancestors, all the women, men, other folks who had busy lives, complicated lives. They heard some version of these teachings, put these teachings into practice. It wasn't easy for them either. Gained some real insight, became wiser, kinder human beings, and were able to pass the teachings down one generation at a time. So it's our turn now. May each of us develop the practice in a way where our lives become part of the causes for real peace, real freedom from suffering in our world, in our hearts. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.